Are you a scaling SaaS founder? Ready to make the leap from leading a team to leading an organization? Join us each week as we refill your think tank with actionable tips and strategies from great business minds you know and those you don't know yet. This is SaaS Fuel with your host, five-time entrepreneur, SaaS founder, and globetrotting adventurer, Jeff Maines. Welcome back to the SaaS Fuel podcast, where our SaaS insights are like Seattle Space Needle, always iconic, cutting edge, and offering a panoramic view of what's coming next. I'm your host, Jeff Maines. I hope B2B SaaS founders like you scale from seven figures, which is good, to eight and nine figures, which is outstanding. Together, we supercharge revenue growth, create premium valuation, and craft the business you're proud of and a life of impact and freedom that you love. Have you ever been to a fish market? You know, like, were there fish on ice behind glass? Yes, no, you know. Uh, If not, I'm sure you've been to a grocery store that has like a little seafood section. Super exciting business, right? Every kid grows up, dreams of working in a seafood market. No? Sounds crazy? Of course it does. You know, I'm glad that somebody does it because I like me some fish for sure. But that seems completely uninteresting. So picture this fish market in your mind. You got it now? Now imagine that this fish market is nationally known. People come from all over the world to see it. And it becomes a must-see tourist attraction. Now, does that sound ridiculously crazy? Well, some of you probably already know that there is one of those. And that is Seattle's iconic Pike Place Fish Market. Books have been written about it. It's a great book called Fish, as a matter of fact. The core product is pretty much the same thing that you can buy anywhere else, but the experience is way different than your typical grocery store visit or a fish market. It's a place where you are bombarded with sensory delights. I mean, flying fish. I mean, they put on a show. You know, spirited hollering, an aroma that tickles your nose. I mean, it's not just a fish market. It is an extravaganza. They turn fish into a fun, shared, interactive experience. And I think that data is kind of like fish on ice at a fish market. Lifeless, cold, relatively uninteresting. You know, it's behind glass so that it isn't accessible to us mere mortals. You know, it's protected. Only special people have access to it. But, you know, a Seattle SaaS company changed that. You, you might know Tableau. Great solution. You know, in a sea of bland data visualization tools, I mean, they're like the spicy sriracha on your avocado toast. I mean, it's unmistakable and kind of indispensable. They made data accessible, fun, and created a shared interactive experience around that. Data is consumable. It's actionable. So how can you make your SaaS business like the Sriracha in a world full of kind of -of run-of-the-mill ketchup packets? First of all, I think we add some zest. I mean, not literal zest. I mean, unless you're into that. I mean, you can figure out how to put that in your solution. But I mean, uniquely targeted features that make ideal prospects say, ooh, that's, that's neat. I need that. And to do that, we need to gain a deep understanding of the outcome they want and deliver plus one. You know, zest might be simplifying a process, reducing the number of clicks, or organizing based on workflow. You know, they just did X, next they need to do Y or Z. And are those right there or are they two screens away? You know, it's like, hey, we got that feature. It's it's over here somewhere. Or is it just right there? You know, developers and users can sometimes be on different planets for a hundred different reasons. You want to make it intuitive for insiders, but that assumes some 
uh, I'll say, you know, knowledge, internal knowledge that outsiders or your prospects may not have. So make it intuitive, not only for insiders, but for those outside of the organization as well. Because your users, they don't do what you do every day. They don't know your solution like you do. It's one of the reasons I love new hires is they come in and they're like, why is that like that? And you go, I don't know, because <laughs> it seemed like a good idea at the time. So think about that. Next is aromatics. You know, what is that great smell? Well, it's your brand story. You know, your brand story is an introduction to your company. It's a precursor to demos, solutions, pricing, and all that other stuff. You know, hearing about your company is like walking into a house that has cookies in the oven. You know, think about two identical solutions, one with a great brand story and one without. Guess who wins 80% more often? Yeah, you got that right. Make your story as compelling as grandma's secret recipe. I mean, so irresistible that people want a second helping. And finally, it's about presentation. I mean, Pike Place Market is a feast for the eyes as much as the stomach. They got great stuff there. Tableau made data a feast for the eyes. Your user experience should be visually appealing and satisfying, leaving customers hungry for more. We talked about UI on the podcast last month. And tech has changed so much in the last few years. I mean, features are important, but always make sure to couple them with beautiful AI. Build beautiful solutions. I mean, why not? Yeah, and if design is not your thing, I hear that quite a bit. Like, you know, I'm back end and I'm not really a front end developer. Well, then get a designer. It is well worth it in the end. You want to make great, beautiful solutions that users love. I mean, kind of like, you know, Tableau did with data, just like walking into the, the market and all those experiences. So let's cook up something legendary with our solutions. Don't just sell a product. Be the extravaganza that people line up for. If you could use a little extra spice on your SaaS journey and hang out with fellow B2B SaaS founders, well, check out today's sponsor, Champion Leadership Group. It is the ultimate resource for SaaS founders and C-suite executives like you and me to continue to develop themselves, scale their companies, and never walk alone on the journey. Supercharge revenue by leveraging time-tested SaaS growth principles, toolkits, playbooks, and frameworks designed to help you scale ARR from seven to eight to nine figures. Collaborate with an elite network of SaaS visionaries as we up-level ourselves, our teams, and have some fun along the way. Confidently take that right next step that turns into a quantum leap of profitable growth, premium valuation, and freedom. You can learn more at championleadership.com. Our expert last week was Alex Kaleo, Chief Revenue Officer at M4 Mobile Research. We talked about understanding consumer behavior and bridging that gap between what buyers say and what they actually do. And our founder last Tuesday was Yaroslav Lazor, CEO and founder of Railsware. Product studio for over 16 years has led technical teams who built world-known SaaS products and brought incredible perspective from MVP to scale. If you missed either one of those episodes, go back and check them out for sure. My guest today is a legend in the SaaS world. He wouldn't describe himself that way, but I mean, he just is. Rand Fishkin is the co-founder and CEO of SparkToro, which puts audience research at your fingertips across platforms. If you want to understand your ideal client, SparkToro is the way to do that. Prior to SparkToro, Rand founded SEO Moz. He's the wizard of Moz. You guys probably all know. You know, Rand has dedicated his professional life to helping people do better marketing through writing videos, speaking, and his book, Lost and Founder, which everybody should read. It's a great book. 
When Rand's not working, he's usually cooking a fancy meal for the love of his life. Author Geraldine DeRuiter. And, you know, if you bribe him with great pasta or fancy cocktails, he will pull back the curtain on Big Tech's Dark Secret, which is exactly how I got him on the show for you today. So welcome, Rand Fishkin. Hey, Rand, welcome to SAS Fuel. Yeah, Jeff, thanks for having me. Good to be here. Well, I know a lot of people know some about your background. I'd love for those that don't. Tell me a little bit about your background. How did you start Spark Toro? And a little bit about Moz before that. Yeah, yeah. So uh, Moz was my first company. I dropped out of college at the University of Washington here in Seattle, where I've lived my whole life, and uh, started Moz initially as a consulting business um, with my mom's kind of old had an old school marketing and advertising firm that she ran here in Seattle for twenty years before that. So I started doing like web design and, and website building with her, and then we moved to SEO. And then in 2007, we launched some software. I had started a, a blog that became very popular called SEO yeah. Moz, and uh, we launched some software in the SEO space, and that really took off. We raised venture capital. Uh, I became the CEO of that company and ran it for seven years, and it, it grew very fast. You know, sort of riding the wave of Google's growth as well. Lots and lots of people interested yeah. in SEO, of course, as as Google became the dominant force for search on the internet. And then in 2014, uh, during a bout with depression, I stepped down as CEO. I stayed at the company a few more years, and things did not go so well for Moz, um, especially in those those last few years. And so, uh, yeah, I was, I think, sold in. 2021 to a private equity company for a not great exit, right? I think it's venture investors would say it was a, I don't know, whatever you want to call it, a base hit, um, yeah. not a home run. And that is how how a lot of venture-backed companies go. So sure. Uh, sure. One, of the, one of the big reasons that I started SparkToro the way I did, that I wrote Lost and Founder, um, which is which is a book sort of about my entrepreneurial journey. Yeah. And the reason that I funded SparkToro the way I did, the reason I'm so passionate about alternative methods of funding is because I think venture is not right for most startups, even most tech startups and SaaS businesses. Um, and I'm I'm hoping over the course of you know the next decade or two to uh, create some alternative options so that entrepreneurs like me um, and lots of entrepreneurs who are not like me at all can have uh, opportunities to do great things and build great businesses that don't have to be, you know, billion dollar unicorns or bust. But most of us are not building billion dollar unicorns. That's the reality. And that's what a lot of the the venture is looking for. And and when you don't do that, even I mean Moz was growing, I mean 100% a year. How can you say that that is not fantastic growth? But then, you know, I mean, you do yeah, that year after year after year. Yeah, Moz went from basically zero to fifty million dollars in maybe eleven years, twelve years, which seems reasonable, right? Seems like a, a reasonable growth path. Um, certainly, if you and I owned that business together, we'd be like, "Woohoo!" Right, <laughs> <laughs> right. Um, but unfortunately, the reality for venture investors is, you know, they're putting money into. You know, let's say they raise a three, four hundred million dollar fund. They're going to put money into maybe 150, 200 companies, and the expectation is, you know, 140 of those 150 are going to die completely. Right? They'll lose all their yeah. money that they put into them. Granted, it's it's going to be only a million or a couple million dollars each. But then 
right? They're hoping that those top three or four, five are going to make the whole fund by making them 20x, 30x, 50x right. their money, right? And so if you're not doing that, if you're not one of those companies that are not really interested, and this is my core contention, my core belief is that that mentality and that focus actually kills startups that might have succeeded. Yeah, I think a lot of companies that could have been $50 million a year, $100 million a year, $5 and $10 million a year businesses that are profitable, that have happy customers, that have wonderful products, that serve a much-needed niche, that are great for their you know, teams and, and, their, and, and for the founders. All those great companies die because they are trying to chase the billion-dollar unicorn, right? They're, they're basically refusing to get profitable and stay there and instead spending themselves into oblivion trying to get faster growth so that they can you know, raise their next round and please their board of directors and get to the numbers that folks are looking for. And I think it's a dumb game to play. I even think it's a dumb game to play for investors. Yes, so, agreed, yeah. 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 You know, Jeff, I don't, I don't know if you invest in startups, right? But like Geraldine and I do a little bit. We, we don't have that much money, right? So we can't like, whatever, invest in 100 companies, but we can invest in like four or five. And so because we can only invest in four or five, we can't take the risk that, you know, 140 out of 150 are going to die, right? <laughs> like those odds are terrible. We're never going to be able to cover our, our bases, right? We can't right. play the game at the scale that, that a venture fund can. For us, the smart bet is how do I beat the you know, 5% interest that I could get from a treasury bond? That, that's the real question. And, yeah. and the answer to me is if I'm going to invest in five companies, I need four of them to get to profitability and then hopefully pay me back my money and maybe pay some dividends and maybe sell at some point in the next 10, 15 years. That's all I need, right? I don't need my 10x return, my 100x return. I'm looking for a portfolio of businesses that look a lot more like restaurant investing, which I know sounds weird, but there are a lot of people in the food world who invest in restaurants, which are supposedly this crazy high-risk business, and they do fine because right. restaurant survival rates in the United States are massively higher than startup survival rates. And I think that's, that's madness. <laughs> it is. It is. Yeah. Anyway, that's my, sorry, I, that's my long <laughs> spiel, philosophical, like, whole thing. But, but that's what I believe about the SaaS world. Well, that's fantastic. And, and I love the book, Lost and Founder. I think you, you really went into a lot of that there. And in Spark Toro, you started differently than, than Moz. And I, I talk to founders all the time. And the Silicon Valley way is, is I mean, like you say there, I mean, it is not the way for most companies. And even if you are going to take on investment, waiting a lot longer than, you know, hey, I've got an idea. Let's take on investors now. Now let's go prove an idea. Let's make some money. And the longer you can delay that, the better it is. And with Spark Toro, you did it very differently. You know, talk about that. Yeah, absolutely. So when I left Moz, it was um, <laughs> not a fun experience. It was it was a pretty terrible um transition, you know, I, I half quit before they mostly fired me, right? <laughs> um, and that process was very painful. It, it was also the case that, you know, we did not have significant savings when I left, when I left Moz, you know, I'd never, I'd never made as much as even like a mid-level Microsoft engineer uh, in my career, right? So I, I owned a lot of stock in Moz, which was essentially what my board told me was my compensation. Like, well, you own so much of the company, we can't pay you more than 
you know, whatever it was, $160,000, $170,000 a year, which don't get me wrong. Like, that's a fine salary. It's so much more money than most Americans make. Like, I, I, I'm not complaining about it. I'm just telling you this because no. when I left, I did not have the funds to bootstrap SparkToro myself. Right? There's no way that I could be like, hey, Casey, I'm going to pay your salary and my salary and our healthcare, and we're going to pay all the Amazon Web Services costs and all the data yeah. acquisition costs and the API costs. And like, we'll build this whole thing ourselves. Even if it takes us two years to build, it'll be fine. I'll cover it. I couldn't do it. There, there was no way. Right, I did not have the, the resources to do that. Um, I did get a nice uh, severance from Moz where they, they essentially covered my salary for a good number of months after I left. And so that kind of helped me get going. And I immediately went to fundraising, but I had to fundraise in an alternative way. And the way I raised was from a lot of folks, you know, like yourself, Jeff, right? So a lot of other founders and people I knew in the marketing and, and SaaS and startup world uh, who I'd built relationships with. And my pitch to them was, we're going to raise $1.3 million for, for about, you're going to, you know, investors own about 25% of SparkToro. So the, you know, pre-money I think was 4 million, post was 5.3. And we are going to cap our salaries. We're going to get the company to profitability uh, using your investment. And then we're going to pay back the money that you've invested in SparkToro. And after that, everybody participates in dividends for 10, 20, 30, 50 years pro rata. So according to your ownership. And if the company ever sells, you know, you'll get you'll get that percent sure. of your ownership as well. But the idea was we we're going to use this money to get this company to profitable survivability for the long term, not we're going to grow as fast as we possibly can. And that is exactly what we've done. We actually uh, wrote checks, felt really great earlier this year. We wrote checks to all of our investors, paid them back the full 1.3 million. And once we did that, uh, Casey and I were able to increase our salaries. We have we had that written into our uh, founding documents, right? That essentially we could our salaries were capped at the Seattle software engineer average, and after that we could bring them up to I think up to two x that level. We didn't bring them all the way up, but um, sure, that's what we did. And so, you know, it's a very I think it's a very fair way to invest, and I think it's a very fair way to build a company. Even if you're going to build a $100 million, billion dollar company, why not raise money that way to start? See where you're going, see what your trajectory looks like, see if you can get to a sustainable, profitable business that's growing, and then identify those growth levers and say, okay, you know what? We could raise another $10 million and do outstanding things, as opposed right. to putting yourself on a track that limits your options going forward. That That's... You know that's my belief, and that's why we raised money the way we did with SparkToro. And I'm encouraging a lot of other folks to do it too. Um, we open sourced our uh, operating agreement, our fundraising documents, so that anybody can take them, put in their own numbers and and data and whatever, and and save a lot of money with their attorneys if they want to go fundraise this way. A few companies have. Uh, there's actually a fund. I don't know if you know, I'm sure you know Rob Walling, MicroConf, right? So Rob's yeah. uh, fund, Tiny Seed, uses the SparkToro structure as the basis for how they do right. their investments in all their funds. Yeah, which is really cool. Really, really smart way to do that. Uh, because the venture money comes with some pretty significant strings attached and, and that growth at all costs. Uh, I've been there, you, you build a, a company that... You know, in, in my case, anyway, I built a company. I just I hated. I, I didn't. I didn't really enjoy it anymore. It wasn't fun. It wasn't what we started out to be. Yeah. And then you're like, well, how, how big what did I you do? guys get? Um, how, that how many one, people? Uh, that one, we're right at a hundred people. Yeah, 
Yeah. Yeah. I don't love the, once we got sort of north of 2530 and you stop having close relationships with all the people at the company, I don't like the politics of it. I don't like the, that kind of size for me is just not tenable and, and not enjoyable. Right. And what, what the heck are we doing here? Right. Like what, are we really on the planet to maximize shareholder earnings? That doesn't seem. Yeah, can't there be a better mission than that? that? Yeah, it's got to be something else, right? Like life must be about more than how do I make sure that my investors get the most money back from a sale, or how do I make sure that instead of becoming a whatever happy, healthy human being with lovely friends and wonderful family life and all those things, I instead put the largest number of zeros behind my bank account that I can. Yeah. I don't know. Yeah, that doesn't make sense to me. No, no, there, there has to be more. And I think it's really sticking to you know, company values. You know, what did you create the company for? What's your mission? Why do you exist? And I don't know any company that starts out and their mission is maximize shareholder value. The end. There's got <laughs> yet, to be more than all that. All the public companies get there, right? Yeah, yeah. All the public companies go from, I mean, Google, you know, Google is a company I followed, obviously, very closely for years. Sure. I thought extremely highly of them. Probably, you know, their first ten years of operation until they went public. That company was so impressive to me. Right? Uh, I didn't agree with everything they did. I gave them plenty of criticism on stage and off, but I cannot argue that they didn't change a lot of the culture around tech. And I think that in the process, they actually built a, a pretty positive reputation for the technology and startup world and the Silicon Valley startup world in general. And you know, then they went public and then Facebook came out and they went public and the social network, <laughs> the movie came out right and you were like, oh, oh, I yeah. see what happens to what I thought were good people and good companies when the incentives of growth at all costs overwhelms everything else. I, think the, I call it being successfully stuck. So you have so much success and, and you, you can't get off the hamster wheel. You can't stop. Because you have to to please investors, and it it just it, it's yeah. exhausting. Yeah, I'll I'll give you a really salient example from what's going on with Spark Toro this year. So we, for folks, I don't know how many folks are familiar with with what we actually do. We do audience research, most mostly for marketers and a lot of um, researchers, market researchers, uh, plenty of folks in tech, founders, startups, that kind of stuff. But uh, our data set is was centrally connected to the. Twitter API that gave us the follower following relationship, right? So we could see what about 350 million people who use Twitter, uh, what all of them followed and what, what, you know, what they were followed by, who they were followed by, right? And so that interest graph and following graph was our starting point for the data set that SparkTor comprises. And then we, we built out from there to 13 other social networks and the public web and podcasts and YouTube channels and all these other kinds of things, right? So, but the core of that data set is those connections. When Elon bought Twitter, of course, he deprecated that API entirely. You can't even pay for it. So even if we even if we wanted to pay for it, we couldn't. And uh, as a result, this year has been a year of complete retooling. Like we basically are entirely rebuilding our infrastructure. We haven't released a new feature this year since January, right? Um, and we're probably about sixty days out from having this new version of the product ready, which is which uses other data sets and other data sources. I like it better. I think it's going to be better for our customers. But, you know, it's one of those things where if we were in venture world, we'd have been done. Right. Just just sunk, right? Because the we basically are at, 
I think we're about 15% decline in revenue from our high, which was March, right? So we basically, you know, we grew at the start of the year and then have been, I mean, not like this, but, you know, yeah, yeah. a slow, steady, you know, bleeding a couple thousand, three, four thousand dollars in MRR every month, right? Because more people are quitting than are signing up and the product just isn't quite as, as strong. And we obviously haven't been able to do as much marketing, right? So, yeah, hey, it's, it's frustrating. It's still, it's still a great product. It still does a lot of things that a lot of people want. People are still signing up every day, which is nice. A lot of people are still using it. That's great. Like we're very happy about the loyalty that our customers have shown and the fact that the product continues to provide value. But we know we got to get off this old data source. And as a result, we sort of tune down all of our other efforts. And there's only three of us. There's only three of us at SparkToro. Just myself, Amanda, and Casey. And um, frankly, we, <laughs> you know, we could have been horrifically stressed and like bent over backwards to try and you know, maintain a growth curve, but it didn't, it didn't make sense. Like we needed the time to retool. My suspicion is if we talk again in a year, I'm going to be able to tell you that that was one of the best things we ever did, right? That just taking it slow, making great decisions, not being stressed out about it, having a good personal and professional year, and then rebuilding the product and launching that, getting that to growth. I think it's the right move, but it would, it would be something that, you know, at Moz, I never could have pulled off. Right. Yeah. Just because of the, the strings attached, uh, you don't have the, the option. And so I, I think you're, yeah. you're right that a lot of times those, those types of trade-offs happen in companies that, that you don't have the, the option. Certainly taking money, uh, especially early, takes away a lot of those options, whether that's to sell, whether it's to raise, whether it's to, to take some time and re, you know, revamp the product, uh, take a step back, pivot, you know, whatever it is. Um, yeah. Having, having those options is, is priceless and being able to build and do what's right for your customers, do what's right for the industry, build something that is still continuing to impact. Uh, not like, well, shut the API down. So we're done. No, there's so yeah. much more. <laughs> yeah. 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 I mean, I think that there are really kind of two options, right? It's send the money, your extra money back to your investors and like shut down and that kind of thing. Right. Which a lot of companies do. Yeah. Um, or it's, you know, how do we try and power through this and burn the rest of our capital and hope that we like find that growth curve again before we die? And a lot of companies do that too. And neither, I, don't, I don't think either one is a great option. I think the ability to be, you know, because we were profitable, we're still profitable. I don't know. I was looking at our like, you know, our finances for August and I thought to myself, hmm, this is. This is technically more profit than Moz made a lot, of, a lot of months, right? With fifty million, but because it was always spending more than it was making, because it was trying to get that that growth curve, right? That the VCs were looking for. So yeah. it's it's just a different world. I I wish I could convince people, um, more people, to think in this way because I think it is a it's not that big a mindset shift, but it changes your whole life and world and it changes how you can how well you can serve customers and what you're aiming for um i think i think profitability and sustainability and the ability to power through bumps and not be worried about proving growth every single month of every single year having some down quarters being okay with that wow <laughs> man i mean <laughs> that, that's just, the normal so life different. in a business is you have those ups and downs. I mean, everything is not always up and to the right. I mean, no matter what you read in TechCrunch, 
it's that's not how it works. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah, I've been noticing. I've been getting uh, in my in my uh, Google Discover feed. I've been noticing, you know, TechCrunch. I think today or yesterday made a popular article about how like bootstrapping is hot again. Yeah. <laughs> and I had this like, thanks publication that's trained us for the last <laughs> fifteen years to you know to think that bootstrapping is the least cool. You know, they use the pejorative lifestyle business bullshit right. all the yeah. time. And serious oh, founders don't it. do that. <sighs> <laughs> Well, Jeff, I'm really glad that SaaS Fuel is the kind of podcast where we can have this conversation. I was a little nervous <laughs> going in. I was like, oh man, is he going to be like, what are you talking about? Go big or go home. <laughs> no, I think that it's growth at all costs is dumb. Uh, deciding we're not going to make a profit is dumb. That's, that's just, it's fundamentals matter. And, uh, you know, I'm all, I love growth, uh, love taking care of, of, of customers and, and building solutions that matter. But I mean, business is in business for a reason. And one of those reasons is to make money. And, and if you can't find a way to do that, then something is fundamentally broken in the model. You know, I'm a, um, probably tell from, uh, from, from my background or following me or whatever, right? I, I'm a very left-leaning person, sort of politically, generally speaking. Um, I don't know that I identify with like all of the labels that one might put on someone like that, but I, I have lots of critiques of capitalism generally, like and especially late-stage capitalism. In my opinion, the job of a responsible government is to, do, uh, is to be responsible in regulating capital and industry so that it's fair. Right. And for example, right, the, the Department of Justice is suing Google right now for all these unfair monopolistic practices to essentially that violate antitrust law. Right. And um, the reality is that I think a lot of people over the last 20, 30 years, especially young folks, um, like the generation just right behind us, even a few years right behind us, I think feel cheated by. Um, the promise of of capitalism of the prior hundred years, and I think fairly, I think they feel cheated fairly because a few big companies and a small number of very wealthy people have continued to consolidate wealth at the expense of kind of broad wealth for the, re- the you know the rest of humanity. I think that sucks. I think it's dumb, and I'm not sure that the solution is you know, whatever, full on communism, or or I'm going to say like, large S socialism, I think social programs and stuff are great. But in my opinion, there are <laughs> responsible market based solutions. And one of those, one of the ones that people like you and I, and everyone who's listening to this can contribute to is building small and medium profitable businesses in niches that serve customers well, build a great product that serve their employees really well, treat them well, pay them well, reward them well, and serve small investors. Even people with a few million or a few tens of millions of dollars are, like when you look at the stats, they're not the problem in the wealth consolidation game, right? right? It's people who are sort of, I don't want to say people, right? And not everyone, but like in the hundred million dollar and billion dollar and up club, that's where most of the consolidation problem come, right? It's like the top 0.01%. That's where, you know, most of the wealth has, has uh, gone. And I, I would contend that it's actually a wonderful thing to have more diversity in companies, like a, a broader number of companies doing well in a space versus one company taking all the money and venture, the, my my like core contention. I I don't even know how venture capitalists argue against this. My core contention is that 
venture is all about rewarding one company, a couple of founders, one investor and their LPs at the expense of thousands of others, right? They are monopoly builders by trade. That is their goal. They think that they'll, they'll be happy to tell you. They think that in every space, there's one winner. Right. And they want to back that one winner, right? And saying that publicly is weird. Like, it's, you know, I get that it's accurate from their perspective and sure. from their financial sure. interests, but it's freaking weird to be like, wealth inequality, oh, I love it. In fact, I spend my whole life trying to create more wealth inequality. What do you do? <laughs> <laughs> it's just it's a weird kind of opener at a party, right? right? But like, <laughs> well, that's one of the things yeah. that the SparkToro has done is really democratized data and market research and brought that down from the, the big companies to the, the small and normal businesses to have access to that that they can act on. So it, was that one of the I, goals I in that. the beginning? Yeah. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely, Jeff. Yeah. So I, I think, you know, obviously this philosophy that I have around whatever sort of economic opportunity and all these other kinds of things also flows into the, into the product. And so, um, and, and it connects with how, I think how you have to build a business if you are going to be um, practicing kind of the thing that we do, which, which we call chill work, right? Essentially, we, you know, we aim to have French working hours, you know, 30, 32 hours a week at most that we're, that we're um, focused on SparkToro and, you know, plenty of time for vacations and family and, you know, prioritizing other things. And uh, in order to do that, we needed a product and a company that did not rely on kind of classic SaaS-based service model, you know, where enterprise sales, you know, big customers and clients who are paying hundreds of thousands or millions of dollars, and you, you've got to service them right away. If they ask for something, you've got to bend right. over backwards for them. Um, you know, sales calls that require lots of time every day. There, there's only three of us, right? So if, if we had 30 hours of, of sales meetings a week, right, or, or calls, that, that'd be it, right? That'd be like, that's, that's 30% of your company time, like gone. Um, and so instead, we built a model that was, let's take this thing that big companies have through, you know, for example, Brandwatch, which, which is an enterprise. Um, sure. They do all sorts of things like social listening and monitoring, social media monitoring, and, and they have an audience research product as well, which is very good. It's a very good product. I, I would be willing to say it's, it's better than SparkToro. Probably for most, you know, if you're an enterprise especially, it's better than SparkToro. But it will also cost you, I think at minimum, like $100,000 a year. And SparkToro is 50 bucks a month, right? So, yeah. so our, you know, our model is how do we make that thing, which has historically only been available to these big companies with these huge budgets, long sales cycles, enterprise levels of service, all that kind of stuff. How do we bring that down to everybody? And by doing that, we, we do two things, right? We broaden the market. Like we say, essentially, hey, all these people who could benefit from this data that, that only big companies have... Could they build better businesses? Could lots of small and medium businesses, lots of marketers do better at their job by having this information at their fingertips for, for a very low price? I mean, we offer a forever free account too, which is very popular. I think we have like 110,000 people who use the free, wow. the forever free plan, um, which is great. Like, I love it. You know, that's my whole thing is like, hey, if the if the top five or 10 results that you get in the forever free plan are all you need, 
awesome. Like go use it. Right. And then, and then you come pay us when you, when you want more, you need more, you're doing more. Wonderful. Uh, I think that's outstanding. And philosophically, this works really, really well with a business that can scale at a low cost of customer acquisition and with a high margin per customer, which is a quite different model than a lot of SaaS businesses. But, you know, as long as the market's big enough to support a a company like ours, and, you know, I think audience research is a, you know, we probably have, (laughs) we could probably grow a hundred times our size, you know, if we were, uh, if we were going all out, but that fits really well. And I, you know, I've been thinking about writing a sequel to Lost and Founder, and a big part of that, I think, is like the design of the business, right? It's like how you design and structure who you serve, why you serve them, what you serve them with, what you choose to do, and really what you choose not to do, which is almost more important. And when you say choose what not to do, is that in, in building the company or the way you structure it? Or tell me more about that. Yeah, yeah, everything, everything, right? So choosing what not to do. For example, you know, you and I were chatting earlier about how neither of us really likes to run big companies of hundreds of people. So we we chose, right? We said basically, we don't like that. Casey and I don't like that. So we're not going to do it. By taking that off the table, we also remove the idea of, hey, we're going to have a big sales team. Can't have right. a big sales team. You, know, you can't <laughs> build a sales-based enterprise SaaS business, right? So we're So we remove that method of acquiring customers and serving customers, what's left to us? Self-service. Okay, right? So the the sort of decision-making that you do around the life you want to lead and the business you want to build informs how you strategically make the rest of your decisions in the business. And this is, this is what I mean about like designing the business around what you are not going to do in addition to what you are going to do, right? But I, sure. I think a lot of founders feel this pressure to make the company successful at all costs. And, and by successful, I mean, you know, at, at venture scale or close to it. And so they don't take options off the table. They invest small amounts of effort and energy uh, into a lot of different tactics, whether that's product tactics, sales tactics, marketing tactics, financial tactics, fundraising tactics, whatever. And as a result, distraction and scope creep and lack of productivity are natural results, right? If you do one thing and you're really good at that one thing and you love doing that one thing, you got high odds of success, my friend, right? And if you choose to do 10 things and you're kind of good at two of them, but not really good at five of them and you're real bad at the last three, no, (laughs) (laughs) We've all been there in life, yes. right? I, I don't. I don't care whether you're talking about um, your home life or your romantic life or your, um, you know, whatever. You play sports and you're particularly good at one position, and you're not so great at these other parts of that particular sport. This is true of all humanity. We are great at specializing. We, we as a species, are great at practicing something and getting better at it. And when we like it and fall in love with it and do it over and over again. That's that's where magic happens. And where disaster happens is when you spread yourself thin and try to be good at everything. This is also true in company building. And yet I see a lot of early stage, even mid-stage founders, right, who are struggling. And so they 
they're throwing spaghetti at the wall trying to trying to make something stick. And my argument would be, this sounds weird. It sounds counterintuitive to like American culture, but think smaller, niche down, do less. You might actually, you might actually do better, be happier, build a happier set of customers, uh, build a happier team. I've talked to a lot of people, especially the last couple of years, where where there's been some, you know, significant funniness. Uh, I don't know exactly what to call it. Declines, changes in in behavior, right? I think because you know the pandemic sort of yeah. grew this massive um, investment in digital of all kinds, and then the, you know, of course everybody divested <laughs> as COVID was lifting, et cetera, et cetera. Um, and I've talked to a lot of founders of companies who sort of are in this like state of feeling like they have to maintain the growth that they had two years ago or a year ago. And I just don't think it's, I don't think that's the right answer. I don't think that's reasonable. I think that sometimes you got to make the cut and the decision to downsize and focus and be really good at that one thing. And that, you know, what's awesome about that? It makes, it makes marketing so easy. Yes. Yes. It's so easy. It's so easy to be one thing for one type of person that serves exactly one goal. And it's really difficult to be, oh, well, we're audience research for everybody, big, medium, small, no matter what business, no matter if we're talking about social media or content marketing or SEO or like all these things, we're everything. <sighs> Your messaging is real tough. Your advertising right. is going to be real tough. Yeah. But you do one thing works. So what is one of the the big marketing myths that you've seen? You've been doing this for a long time. You know, marketing myth that just needs to be busted. Ooh, um, this was not always a myth. And I think that's actually why, why it's so pernicious and strong. Uh, marketing attribution is dead. Hmm. I don't, I'm not even going to say dying. Uh, I'm going to say it is, it is dead. And what I mean by that is, you know, if you go back in time seven or eight years, uh, nearly every place on the internet that would that could or would send traffic supplied um, a referrer string. Yep. Every browser supported third-party cookies and uh, and full, you know, not even ninety-day cookie windows. You could you could track people for years, right? So I could say, oh, someone just signed up for. Spark to our, well, at the time I was at Moz. So, okay, somebody just signed up for Moz. Let's look at the last two years of their visits to our site and all the channels and tactics that brought them to us. And then we can do an attribution model that basically says, oh, okay, well, you know, events was this much, podcasts and YouTube channels and webinars was this much, uh, content was this much, SEO was this much, paid search was that much. Boom. All right, there's the attribution for that one person. Now let's do it for the next 10,000 people who sign up. And now we've got like a very, very uh, impressive attribution system. And, and most sophisticated companies were doing that. And then three things happened. One, ad blockers and privacy laws yep. changed, right? And so basically a, a huge portion of essentially all your EU customers and a number of other jurisdictions, including California and Canada uh, next year, uh, a lot of that data not available dropped. The cookie window went from infinite to 90 days. It might be shrinking again soon. Third-party cookies declared illegal, <laughs> right? And, and said, uh, in the EU, and Chrome, Safari, Firefox, the, the three major browsers, 
dropping third-party cookie support entirely. Completely different world. Oh, and then the last one, dark social, right? The rise of dark social. So essentially, um, tons of sources. That TikTok's a great example of this. Uh, any link on TikTok, in, they're almost all bio links, right? Because they won't... Uh, I think they do let you put some, some links in some other stuff, but they all carry no refer string. So you have no idea if TikTok sent you an organic visit. Nobody right. does. TikTok like blocks it entirely. Uh, LinkedIn blocks a bunch of them. Um, Reddit blocks some. Facebook blocks like 25%. You, you, the only one who still carries it is Twitter. But of course, all of these platforms also, in addition to dark social, they have all biased to native content, right? So Twitter, like right. in the algorithm that Elon open sourced, he showed, hey, you know, we penalize a tweet's visibility and engagement if it has a link in it. Because we don't want people leaving the site. That's true across all social platforms. Exactly. So all these things happened. And marketers are still told by their bosses and teams and clients, show me the attribution. It's not possible. All you're going to see are the attribution channels that are still available to you, which are the paid ones. Right. And big tech loves that. Big tech loves that because it means you're going to put your money into Apple, Amazon, Google, Facebook. Right. Yeah. It's, just, it's just dumb. So attribution's dead. It is a marketing myth. It used to be real, right? Like you're not, you're not dumb or, or you know, foolish for thinking like, hey, wait a minute, didn't this attribution thing, didn't I learn all about how to do that and these models and I saw them in my previous companies? Yes, you did. And they are wrong today. They are absolutely undercounting every organic investment you can make. They're undercounting word of mouth. They're undercounting PR. They're not counting content. You're missing out on tons of SEO stuff, right? Keyword not provided that Google changed in, what was that, 2014, 15? So all Mm -hmm. all this, it's it's just gone. And so you're getting a completely biased picture. If you invest in marketing on on an attribution basis, you're making mistakes. That's really, really good. Is there a still a way to track organic or how do we how do we measure that other than just asking you can so I, I wrote this blog, blog post about um, how to measure hard to measure channels so if you if you google hard to measure SparkToro you'll probably find it um, and you can build models that use the, it's not attribution though it's measurement measurement being things like I can measure how many new followers I got I can measure uh how many impressions I got, how many engagements I got on a platform. I can measure how many people saw a thing. I can measure how much traffic I got overall, right? So, you know, if folks are listening to this podcast, for example, and they're like, oh, this SparkToro thing sounds interesting. I want to learn more about audience research and what Rand's up to. So they go to sparktoro.com and they sign up for an account. We'll never be able to know that it was because of the SaaS Fuel podcast. Like, I can't prove it. But in the whatever, two weeks after SAS, this, this episode launches, I can look at my traffic and be like, huh. You see a bump. Does it look about 10? Yeah. Yeah. Like, does it look about 10% higher than it normally does, right? Than the trend would have suggested? Yeah, it does. You know what? I think that like these 100 signups probably came from SAS Fuel or, you know, whatever it is. So it's time series measurement-based uh, stuff. And that a lot of CEOs and CMOs don't believe in that. Right, they have they've been trained not to. Right. Um, if you go back to, you know, what's considered like the golden age of of brand advertising, right the the 1950s, 60s, 70s. Basically, 
This is how Coca-Cola chose which billboards to run in which cities. Right. Right. They put up a billboard on Michigan Avenue in Chicago, and then they looked at same store sales over the next three months. And they said, huh, we saw a 4% lift in same store sales of Coca-Cola and, you know, whatever the rum we were advertising that we also earned. And okay, that's, that's what we're going to do. We're going to run that billboard. That was way more successful than the one we put in Detroit and the one we put in New York. Sorry, <laughs> like, <laughs> I hate I hate to bring it back to twentieth century style marketing measurement, but that's the world we live in because the the technology has been rendered obsolete. the The only people I think who can still do the full attribution modeling stuff and rely on that are really big companies who are investing tens or hundreds of millions of dollars in almost exclusively advertising based channels, and they're really just trying to test their digital advertising. Fine. For yeah. you, yes, Google is happy to provide you with, you know, the keywords. So even though supposedly it's a privacy problem, they'll they'll, <laughs> they'll give it to you if you pay them, right? Uh, Facebook is happy to provide you with full funnel attribution. Uh, Amazon's happy to show you all the you know product data, YouTube, uh, TikTok, whatever, right? So the ad platforms, if that's the only place you're doing your marketing, fine. Everybody else, you're out of luck. It's definitely changed. I think this really, really interesting perspective is I haven't heard anybody else say it like that. So I think that's, yeah, that's I, really, really helpful. I mean, it's weird because I feel like when I talk about the stuff, I, I think marketers know, right? Like they know these things are happening, but maybe just haven't considered the implication of it. You know, when you, you're like, oh, okay. All the browsers are killing third-party cookies. Oh, okay. Google took away keywords. Oh, okay. The EU, you know, banned Google Analytics. Oh, okay. Ninety-day cookie, you know, or whatever. Uh, cookie windows have shrunk to even first-party cookie windows, right? Have shrunk to, to yeah. ninety days or whatever. And oh, I I can't, uh, you know, I can't see all these refers because of dark social. And oh, yeah, all the platforms are penalizing content with links. And you combine all those things, the outcome is. Real obvious, right? Like I'm, I'm, not, I'm not a rocket scientist here. Coming like, oh, I'm a, you know, on my whiteboard with all my formulas or anything. It's just this is how it is, man. <laughs> yeah, the platforms want the attribution for themselves and their paid channels, and then they don't want to to give it for anything else. I mean, think right? about the incentive, right? Yeah. If you if you're Facebook, Google, Apple, Amazon, you're kind of like, ah. Oh, I love this, right? <laughs> I, I can basically get marketers who were trained for the last 15 years to only invest in attribution provable channels to put all their money and budget into paid. Right. That's great for me. Of course right. I'm going to encourage that. Well, you know, one of the things that I love about uh, you know, Spark Toro and and what you've done with your business as well and, and other entrepreneurs is giving back. Uh, to the community. So we're not in business that we're talking about just for ourselves, but there, there's a lot more uh, that we can do as entrepreneurs and as we create wealth and then that's, that's shared. And so one of the organizations you support, I mean, even when you speak, is givedirectly.org. Tell me about them. Yeah, uh, I love these folks. I think they're, they're really counterintuitively. And, and the reason is, so a lot of people doesn't matter your political beliefs, like a lot of people have the uh, impression that if you just give folks who don't have much wealth money, that that money will not be spent wisely, right? So if you, whatever, go to a poor community in 
whatever uh, uh, country in Africa or or in a European country or in the United States. Give directly during the pandemic started operating in the United States as well because. Um, Turns out we have some some of the worst, uh, <laughs> uh, most pernicious poverty in, in the world, which is pretty embarrassing for the world's richest country. And and so essentially, what they do is they'll, you know, they'll go to a place like um, whatever New Orleans, for example, right? And they'll they'll uh, have an application process um, for uh, folks, and they'll basically, you know, you kind of submit your finances to them, and they will say, okay, here's ten thousand dollars, right? And then they look at, they track what happens to that person and their family, um, you know, the people that they live with over the next two to five years, right? So they have, they, they do a little bit of research in here. And they're essentially like, the outcomes are incredible. People start businesses, people pay off student loans, people um, get out of debt, they manage to take care of their, their health and medical care, which means that they can get jobs, which means that they can you know, sort of increase their their family's economic uh, status and productivity and all this kind of stuff. And then that creates more opportunity for the community around them. If you take a community of a thousand folks, you know, in a, in a small region that are poor and you make a hundred of them suddenly sort of, you know, much more well off, uh, not even necessarily rich, but more well off, like the other 90 benefit as well. It's right. just, just how it goes, right? Um, and... Yeah, so Give Directly has some awesome research around this, and when I when I read up on it and, and read some articles about them, I was like, I, gosh, I, I kind of love this. And, and you know what's great about it too is the overhead is so small, right? So being a software entrepreneur, I really like margins, right? And so in the nonprofit world, I love this idea that oh my god, all this money, I you know ninety nine dollars of every hundred goes directly, hence hence the name Give Directly, right? Yeah. Goes directly to folks who need it. And then you can see the outcome, like it's evidence-based, outcome-based. It's just, it's just great. Um, I also, because I'm such a contrarian, I love that most people think it's going to go to like whatever drugs and alcohol or, you know, bad things. I, I don't know what other bad things, but nope, that's not how it is. Turns out <laughs> people who are poor are not dissimilar to people that are rich. They want good lives for their friends and family yep. and their community around them and, they will invest positively, uh, and if we can get rid of that bias, maybe uh, yeah, maybe some more folks can benefit. So anyway, give directly. I love, love that. It. Yeah, fantastic. We'll make sure and drop out a link uh, in the, the show notes for that as well. Where can people learn more about you and about Spark Toro online? Yeah, so um, I, I mean, I have this book, Lost and Founder. I am uh, most active on social media right now on LinkedIn and Mastodon. I'm, I'm hoping Mastodon, that Threads is going to federate with Mastodon, so you'll be able to follow me on Mastodon on Threads soon. Okay. Uh, yeah, and um, SparkToro obviously is totally free to create an account and play around with it as much as you like. We don't have a free trial. You don't have to put in a credit card. It's just totally free. So That's feel awesome. free to um, yeah, have a look at that. And hopefully, uh, hopefully soon, Jeff, I will have an announcement around another book. Um, yeah, probably next year. Awesome. I can't wait for that. Make sure I link that the bio and, uh, and Mastodon in, uh, in the show notes as well. So, Rand, it's been Wonderful. a great conversation. Really appreciate you being on SAS Fuel. My pleasure, Jeff. Thank you for having me. Take care. Thanks again, Rand, for coming on the show and sharing your journey and insights. Man, super, super value from someone who has built an amazing business twice and in two totally different ways. You don't really see that that often. 
you know, and I know how difficult that is. Uh, huge respect, and uh, he's amazingly candid about the process as well. You can learn more about Rand and Spark Toro at sparktoro.com. And be sure to pick up his book, Lost and Founder, because it is so good. All links, highlights, resources, and full show notes are available at sasfuel.com. And of course, check us out on YouTube as well. Subscribe or follow us there. Share this episode with a friend. They will thank you and think that you're super smart for uh, referring the podcast to them. Everyone who subscribes this week gets a craft coffee starter kit for kids because, you know, it's never too early to train the next generation of coffee nerds like me. It includes a toy AeroPress and foam art stencils. You know, it's kind of funny, but now I kind of want some coffee. How about you? Well, join us Thursday on our SaaS Fuel Expert Series, where my guest is Mike Porter, president at Printmail Consultants. Mike and I will talk about content marketing, marketing strategy, how to engage the SMB market, and deliver content in surprisingly effective ways. And next Tuesday, we have founder Greg Rich. He is a tech CEO whose entrepreneurial roots were watered not by Silicon Valley, but by a family business and a stellar help desk. He is a rare blend of customer service fanatic and tech-savvy leader who's turned experiences into empires. That would be a great episode, so I look forward to seeing you then. Be safe if you and the kids are going out tonight, and I will see you next time. And as always, enjoy the journey. Thanks for listening to SAS Fuel. Full show notes for each episode, which includes a summary, key takeaways, quotes, and any resources mentioned, are available at sasfuel.com. Be sure to follow and subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts. And if you're enjoying the content and getting value from these episodes, please leave us a rating and review at ratethispodcast.com slash sasfuel. We'll be sure to read these out on future episodes.